Hello and welcome back to Scottish Independence Podcasts. This week we have one of the really interesting panel discussions from the conference called The Breakup of Britain, which was a tribute to Tom Nairn, Scottish philosopher, political theorist, academic, who died in January 2023. This discussion is chaired by Maggie Chapman. The speakers are Jamie Driscoll, Francis Foley, Joyce McMillan and Alan Smith. The title of the session was SNP after Sturgeon, Labour with Starmer. It's a bit long, but it's very interesting and hope you enjoy it. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome back. Um, my name is Maggie Chapman. I am the Scottish Green MSP for the North East of Scotland region, and I'm delighted to be chairing this session uh, this afternoon on when next for the SNP after Sturgeon and for Labour and Astama. We see our, our different political futures shaping up. We have four wonderful speakers with us this afternoon and we, we decided that senior in Scotland are going to be magnanimous and let England go first. They, they might as well get the one opportunity today to do so. So it gives me great pleasure to introduce our first speaker who is Jamie Drissel. Jamie is the independent mayor in the north of Tyne, and as elected representative and progressive, that's pretty unique. So, you know, we can do it, it is possible, and Jamie's living proof of that. Jamie, over to you. You know, it's not very often I'm in front of an audience who see me on the far right of a panel. <laughs> Democracy is the operating system of our society. We often talk about it in the abstract, but it's the way we make decisions, the way we get things done. I'm an engineer by profession, I was also a software developer, and our current version of democracy stops us doing a lot of things. It's the equivalent of a opera computer operating system that won't let you run an ad blocker, that just lets everything be commercialized. We actually have the same operating system, more or less, that we had when London was the center of a global empire that spanned a quarter of the earth. And that colonial mindset is deeply embedded in those institutions. And speaking as someone who represents, who's in power in the northeast of England, please don't take this as any offense, but this audience will probably remember MS-DOS as an operating system. <laughs> <laughs> Some big fans of it, apparently. And that user interface, you have to know the right codes to be able to get in and do anything. That's how British democracy works at the moment. There's a number of ways you can tackle an upgrade of an operating system when you're designing it. One of them is called bloatware, where you just add on module after module after module. You can do anything to restructure the thing from the start. And that is what happens at the moment. If you think of the Shared Prosperity Fund, which replaced European funding in name only, it's only 60% of the money. Well, that has this system where Whitehall says, you're gonna get some money. We're not gonna tell you the rules for spending it. Can you work up the programs? We want it spent by the end of this year. We developed our program. We, we hit their deadlines. We had it in July. It was supposed to be spent by the end of March, that financial year. They didn't sign it off to December because the way I did it in power, I said to my team, look, just do something that's good, that works. And I'll stand between you and Whitehall 
because I guarantee no one else have spent the money anyway, and they'll be glad that something's just happened they've got to point to, which is exactly the way it worked. So to, to finish this tortuous metaphor of operating systems, what we need is open source democracy. That ability for communities, groups, trade unions, businesses to say, we've got this idea, can we use the existing democratic institutions to help this work? If we do that, we can start to change. The other thing we need to talk about in democracy, though, is what's in scope. It's pantomime season, but frankly, I think if you talk to lobby journalists, it's pantomime season all year round. Who's up? Who's down? Who um, spoke out of turn uh, an event in Scotland, Clyde Lewis? Um, all of that sort of stuff is going to be an issue. And it's a false binary. The left, the right, they like to paint it on a spectrum. The big fundamental difference in politics when you talk to people comes down ultimately to one thing when it comes to the administration of public finance. Where do you believe wealth comes from? What do you believe wealth is? There are those who believe that a burgeoning financial sector with rising asset prices is wealth. And then there are those who believe healthy, educated people who feel they have a stake in society where they think the law works for them, people who think that is wealth. And you look at any financial shock, natural disaster through history, the countries that rebound fastest are the ones who've looked after their people, not the ones who've worried about numbers in bank accounts. Since the 2007 crash, Gordon Brown became Prime Minister, unelected by the people, had to resign so he couldn't get a coalition. David Cameron was not elected by the people, he got there through a coalition, and um, he's back again, of course, but he had Brexit referendum resigned. Theresa May, unelected by the people, resigned. Boris Johnson, unelected by the people, convicted, then resigned. Liz Truss, um, that brief acid trip that lasted about seven weeks, Liz Truss, unelected, resigned. Rishi Sunak, not even elected by his own party, and if there wasn't a general election coming, you know he would have to resign. Why is it that no one can operate even on their own terms? It's because nobody has addressed the fundamental problems since 2007 that have led to austerity, and it's the belief that GDP is more important than well-being, and that's why nobody can deliver a damn thing that works for the people of our countries. I'll give you two examples of what I've done. Not the job creation, not the opening new railway lines, all the big stuff, which is good. One is the adult education budget. This is training welders and chefs, forklift drivers. I got that devolved in 1st of August 2020. And we spoke to the people who deliver courses. We spoke to local businesses and said, if people have done a course, will you guarantee them an interview at the end of it? They said, yeah, we'd love that. We spoke to the people who'd been on courses, and crucially, the people who dropped out of courses and said, what with your barrier? It might be, well, I didn't have Wi-Fi at home. Or, well, I've got to pick the kids. Or, I've got a zero-hours contract, and I don't know what my hours are from one week to the next, so I can't go on them. We have increased the number of courses delivered from 22,000 a year to 35,000 a year on the same budget by running free, flexible courses that work around people's actual barriers. 
When was the last time you heard any branch of government get a 50% increase in value for money? And we did it by listening to people, by getting them involved. That's what democracy should be. We work with teachers in the classrooms. We funded a project where teachers can actually be protected and have conversations that go as a team and peer review another school in a different area, affluent to deprived areas, urban to rural areas. One teacher said to me, I've refound my teaching mojo. It's about getting rid of public services being seen as league titles and data and moving it back to the people in the front line who deliver them. So let's move on to today's question. What next? Labour are going to win by default next year. That's my opinion. But let's look underneath that. In Tyne and Weir, actual election results since 21, this is pre-party date, when Tories were polling over 40%, to 23, this year's local elections, in absolute terms, the Labour vote fell by 2%. Fewer people voted Labour this year than in 2021. 40% drop in the Tory vote, so it looks great on the polls, but people are staying at home, or electing independents, or Greens. I mean, I left the Labour Party in disgust at Keir Starmer's remarks that you all drink scotch for comic effect only. But if we look at internal democracy in the Labour Party, which uh, will not litigate that, but I think that's a pattern of behaviour. Someone asked me, says, uh, is this um, McCarthyism? And I said, no, in McCarthyism, you've got a public hearing and a chance to refute the charges. voters care about this? Though? Well, actually, some do. You've got to look at Ken Livingstone in 2000. Uh, voters do care about politicians fiddling expenses, politicians stitching things up. They do care about democracy. Why? Because most people understand that it's a pattern of behaviour, that behaving in a democratic way is a trait, not a series of isolated incidents, just as bravery or honesty or cowardice or dishonesty our traits. If that is how someone governs now on things that aren't important to the country, how are they going to behave when there's important things coming up, which is we're seeing unfolding in Gaza? A Labour government, sadly, and it's with great regret I say this, is not going to fix the million children in destitution. It's not going to fix the seven million people waiting for an operation in the NHS. It's because they are not going to tackle the thing that needs tackling, which is that the vast majority of our money is part of a wealth extraction model, which takes money out to the foreign billionaires on our infrastructure, our utilities, our financial models, our outsourced public services. And until somebody does that, there's never going to be the ability to allocate resources that put education, health, welfare, and well-being ahead of the agenda of those who just want to see bank balances rising. Now, what comes after that? That's a discussion for another day. But what's the answer? How do we deal with this? That catch-22 of, well, we need proportional representation, but how do you get proportional representation without proportional representation to vote in the people who want proportional representation? There is an alternative. Local elections. We are seeing more independence, more Greens, more community independence winning across the country. And next May, I'm running again as an independent in the Northeast. And someone asked me, as a journalist asked me, said, Jamie, why are they so terrified of you? Why do they need to block you? 
I think it's because you've shown there's a different way to run things. And you've shown it works. And one of the things I'm going to do from May next year is bring the entire transport system back under public control with rail, <laughs> buses, metros, expanded car clubs so you can have access to a zero emissions vehicle without needing to own one, bike hire and secure bike parking, free travel for under 18s, and massively increase the people using it so that the emissions fall because there's fewer cars on the road. Now, you get someone wins in the northeast of England next year who shows that they've rejected the Westminster model, but people have voted for it. That's a general election year. What message does that send to our politics? There is a way through. There's always a way through. So let's have a bit more freedom and a bit more democracy. Thank you. Thank you very much for that, Jamie. We'll forgive you the Scotch comment just this once. Our next speaker is Francis Foley, who joins us from Compass. Um, Francis is Deputy Director at Compass and has written and spoken extensively on democratic engagement, empowerment, and renewal. Hi, everyone. It's great to be here today. For those of you who don't know Compass, my boss, Neil, sometimes describes it as a mad experiment in being nice. And it's actually turned out some interesting results. So in 2011, we made the decision to move outside of the Labour Party and open up to people all parties and none, which has basically turned out with people hating us from every different side. So the SMB think we're Labourites, the Labour Art think we're Greens, the Greens think we're somehow in cahoots with the Lib Dems, and the truth is we're kind of all of those things and none of those things. And to pick up really a bit where Jamie left off, I'm going to speak today about three key things. So firstly, I'm going to say what I think democracy in the abstract needs uh, with a little bit of a salute to Tom Nan. Then I'm going to say a specific prescription for maybe what Britain in 2023 needs right now. And spoiler alert for those of you who know what Compass do, it is PR. And then finally, I'm going to say what I think Starmer and the Labour Party more generally could do to embrace and adopt constitutional democracy. Above all things, I think democracy actually needs space. And at the risk of kind of overextending sort of scatological metaphors, Britain is truly in a constipated state right now. And that basically also means that none of those juices are flowing. Nothing is happening. Nothing is moving internally within our body politic. Or if it does, it's only ever convulsions and distortions and contortions. What else does democracy need? Well, I think it needs agility and flexibility. I think it needs the courage to kind of innovate and do things differently, and for people to see the broad expanse of things that are possible, like Jamie spoke about. I think it needs feedback loops and responsiveness. I think it needs politicians who kind of feel accountable to people, and it needs um, people pulling levers with strings actually attached to things, <laughs> whereas in Westminster, a lot of the time, it is this marionette politics with nothing happening down below. I think to, to kind of pick up on, on the legacy of Tom Nairn, who was obviously a massive fan of Gramsci, and for those of you who know anything about Compass, it would be remiss of me not to mention Gramsci in the first minute of speaking. Um, we have a joke at Compass that everybody has to drink as soon as someone mentions Gramsci, because it's really at the core of everything we do. And there are a lot of often used phrases about Gramsci, but actually my favourite is that all people are intellectuals. It's just that some people are allowed the function of being an intellectual. And I think we could do well to remember that when we think about democracy, because let's be honest, progressives haven't always got that right. 
I think a large part of what happened after Brexit was that people lost trust, that progressives saw people as capable, as acting in good faith, as expressing genuine concerns and genuine desire for power and agency. And PR is the specific prescription for right now. It's not about saying, you know, it will solve all things, it's a land of milk and honey. It's about saying it's a really important tool to crack open a system that's really not working. So let's talk a little bit about why I see sort of PR as kind of this first stepping point. Well, you might say here in Scotland, well, we have PR, and of course that is true. But I would say it's only half the battle there. So in 2015, when the SNP had this landmark landslide victory and won 53 out of 56 seats in Scotland, at the same time, 1.1 million people in the UK voted for the Green Party and 3.8 voted UKIP. Both of those sets of people got one MP each. I think it's no accident that a year later, you saw 17 million people voting for Brexit. And I think that's because when change is blocked, it comes out in another space. It will never be denied, it will only be converted into a new form. And I think, maybe slightly controversially, that the independence referendum and Brexit are actually not so different. And I think this is where progressives sometimes have misinterpreted what happened over Brexit. Both were a demand and, in fact, a kind of real call for agency, power and control. And I think we do, could do well to remember that when the right of the media, especially people like Nigel Farage, want to claim that victory for their own. And I think, actually, controversially, that PR vote that's happened and PR that's benefited Scotland so well has actually been great for the SNP. I mean, we can touch on this later. Because monopolies are never good for power. And I think, in general, we should be thinking about how we break open monopolies and encourage more uses to flow and more light in. So I see PR as the tip of this beer. We need to sort of crack open that system, and I think that is the biggest thing that we could do at this particular moment. Because the main problem in the UK is, especially for English, nothing ever seems to change. It's not that people don't want change, it's just that nothing ever seems to, and we're told again and again by the elite and the establishment that nothing will, no matter what you do. So in some slight controversial uh, way, you know, I voted for Remain, but part of me understood that what Brexit vote was about was that, you know, people were offered a very blunt instrument, but they used its great effect to overturn the tables of what the establishment wanted and what they thought was possible. And I think we need to answer that call. One of my favorite journalists, John Harris, said the day after Brexit referendum that the UK was basically so imbalanced that it had fallen over. And that really stuck in my mind as an image of a body kind of sprawling on the floor, sort of slightly, slightly jittering, which is how a lot of people felt, whether they voted leave or remain the day after. So to come on to the prescriptions for this, PR is about sort of changing the system and breaking that system open. But I think most important, what Starmer's Labour Party could take on board really strongly is this idea that how, the how of politics is everything. It's not some second order issue. It's not a nice to have. It's actually at the root of everything that politics is about. And so I would say, slightly controversially perhaps, Keir Starmer is actually conforming to the electoral logic of first past the post right now. People like to say, oh, it's because he's nervous, it's because he's a lawyer, it's because he's been captured by the right of the party. All those things may be true. But actually, I think a more interesting way to look at it is the structures and systems that incentivize and reward the way that he operates. So first past the post does reward people working at the margins. It rewards the small target strategy. It rewards, you know, as is the famous phrase, carrying that Ming vase over the slippery floor, really desperate not to drop it. 
And let's not forget these are structural and systemic things which Keir Starmer is operating within. You know, I really wish that he could see if the Labour Party in general could break open and break out of this. They might find that there's a, an upswell and a well of confidence there that they tap into. Because recently Keir Starmer's talk started talking a lot about security. I don't know if you've noticed the kind of beautiful, mashed up phrase of securonomics has become very popular. And I think he has put a finger on the bruise there. But what I would say is the answer to security, to, to that insecurity that people feel is confidence. Now, you don't get confidence by making yourself smaller. As Hilary Wainwright amazingly said earlier, you don't get confidence by crouching. You get confidence by making yourself bigger. And the way to do that is to lean into the logic of progressive alliances, of breadth in politics, of having the debate, and spotting who your key allies are. Just to close, I would say there's two things that I really want the progressive left, no matter where you live in the UK, to really take on board in relation to democracy. One is that operations and organizing are the, the cornerstone of what we do. I love coming to conferences like this. I'm passionate about ideas, and I love that to and fro in that discourse. But unless we operationalize those things, unless we plan for power, unless we take organizing seriously, things are not going to change because we have some headwind working against us. And that means building institutions. You know, Sometimes the boring work of building institutions, which I think you guys in Scotland have done much better than we have in England. Because, as I sometimes say about, you know, we're often, it's a horrible term, but we're often termed on, it comes to be on the soft left. And what I say is, like, the soft left needs to learn how to play hardball, you know? We need to put stuff in place that's actually going to make us powerful and make us hard to ignore. And then, secondly, I would say that actually you need to give people the experience of a different kind of politics. It's all good to talk about it, but actually it has to feel different. So for me, that starts with PR, it starts with cooperative politics, showing, not telling, a different way of doing things that I think Jamie and Andy Burnham are doing amazingly in their own constituencies. But I also think it goes to things like citizen assemblies, which has been discussed often today and facilitated a lot of citizen assemblies. And the most important thing is that it builds our democratic muscle and our democratic faith in one another, that we see people acting in good interests with a lot of knowledge, with a lot of experience. And I think that's incredibly powerful. And you know, you have to practice it so people know the difference democracy makes. We know that populism is on the rise and it offers easy answers to difficult questions. But democracy has to feel different to people in order to be something that people value and take seriously. So I'll just close by saying what Compass are doing in the next election, which is against every grain and is, I hope, quite countercultural. We're often showing up the cracks in this system. We target these monopolies of power. So all parties in the UK operate like monopolies, a lot of them incredibly centralized and top-down, with the possible exception of the Greens. But we are kind of wrong-footing those monopolies by doing grassroots, bottom-up politics. We have 40 local groups across the UK, and they decide the candidate that they will back at the election, usually the best piece progressive to win, and the candidate that supports systems change, starting with PR. And I think what's interesting about that is, you know, we've done door knocking where you knock on people's doors and you appear with three traffic light rosettes and people are just <laughs> completely bamboozled and that's way into a conversation. Isn't it mad that I open the door with a red rosette on and immediately you know what to think of me? Immediately you've, you know, conjured up some ideas of what you think I am and I'm not. So we're trying to do things a bit different, we're being a bit playful and we're trying to work around things to show up the way that the system concentrates power. So the final thing I'll, I'll leave you on is this idea of democracy is more than elections, but we have to use elections to sort of revitalize our politics. And if we go right back to the start of like what the body politic might need at the moment, well, 
I think in the UK, especially in England, it needs a bit of a zhuzh. It needs a bit of like, you know, it needs a galvanizing, it needs energizing. And so what we're doing at Compass is trying to build that appetite and agency for systems change by confronting the politics of where we are right now. The campaign is called Winners One, which gestures to that unity, but it's often about that agility. And I think the more that we gather in forums like this, the more that we try different things, we could build that capacity that people really need to feel to make democracy at the heart of everything they do. Thank you. Thank you very much for that, Francis. I think talking about the how of politics is, is so important, and we've had quite a lot of discussions about not only the ideas, but also how to, how to make them a reality. So, so thank you for, for highlighting that. Next up, we've got Joyce McMillan. Joyce won't be a stranger to, to many of you, I'm sure. She's a well-known columnist, theatre critic, and political commentator. I often walk past her. She's very, very studiously focused on the cabaret in the garden lobby in the Scottish Parliament, commenting on, on what she's seen uh, around her that day. And I, I'm always amazed that somebody, usually me or, or somebody else, isn't doing something completely ridiculous in the background of the cover. So watch out when you're getting broadcast from the Scottish Parliament. Look at who's in the background and what they're up to. Thank you very much uh, to the organisers for involving me in this, this wonderful project. I'm also feeling so much as if I'm seeing my life passing before me, not only lots of faces from the campaign for a Scottish Parliament back in the, the 1990s, but also lots of ideas from that time about how you revitalise democracy, about what we mean by democracy, about the aspirations we had then for trying to use the Parliament or the idea of a new Parliament to build a new democracy. And I remember there, there was a wonderful pamphlet published at the time called To Make the Scottish Parliament a Model for 21st Century Democracy. And what we've achieved is not that, but the effort was well worthwhile. And the incremental movement we've made, I think, while we're all very aware of its, its shortcomings and limitations now, I think with hindsight we can see that it was a massive step in the context of Britain's very, as everyone has said, constipated constitution. So I'm, I'm remembering all of those times and it's been absolutely fantastic. Also remembering another feature of that period, which was Charter 88 and, and the not only UK-wide but islands-wide uh, movement for constitutional change and the fantastic dialogue that, that we were sometimes able to achieve at that time between all the different parts um, of the UK and Ireland about the kind of democratic future that we wanted. I've always found that the most incredibly fertile and interesting um, debate. And I think, you know, those of you who have heard contributions from Ireland today and the, the contribution from um, Leanne Woods this morning would agree with that, that there's a terrific synergy and energy there about how these islands need to change if only we could find ways of animating and moving that. But to come to the subject of this session, the SNP after Nicholas Sturgeon and Labour under Starmer. It's a huge subject which touches on almost every aspect of politics that any of us cares about at the moment, and I will try just to highlight a few points about it. 
one of the things that I think we should never forget is the number of similarities between these two parties, even in their current widely different situations. Yes, the NP at the moment is an incumbent party coming, or not perhaps coming to the end, you know, in after a long, long period in government and a very trying one. Labour is a party which hasn't been in power for the last 13 years, 13 years of Tory misrule. Some of us are sadly old enough to remember that slogan from 1964 when I was 12. But um, 13 years of Tory misrule have certainly taken place. And they've left Keir Starmer's Labour, that kind of moderate Labour that doesn't frighten the horses, all the rest of it, in a very strong position to win the next UK general election under the first-past-the-post system, of course. The SNP, on the other hand, suffering from the new popularity of Labour, from desperation of Scottish voters to get rid of the Tories, of seeing Labour as the fastest route to that, and all the other pressures that we know. So they're very different political situations at the moment, but we should never forget the kind of twins aspect of particularly Labour and the SNP in Scotland. These are both broadly, or at least nominally, social democratic parties and broadly socially liberal parties. They're striving for social democratic change of a kind that is gradual and not disruptive on the whole, both of them. And neither party is what you would call revolutionary. Neither the SNP nor Labour has been socialist in any full sense of the term for a long time. They are aspiring to the kind of social democracy that we see working well in many other countries of Northern Europe. And when it comes to many, many of the social problems, you know, the chronic social problems, including areas like housing, employment, the possible impacts of AI. If you look at SNP and Labour positions, they are often very, very similar. Their responses to those problems are often very, very close together indeed. Talking about the, the small differences idea, it's that egoism of small differences, I think, that leads to a lot of the bitterness between Labour and the SNP in Scotland. That, of course, and their big disagreement over the Constitution. Nonetheless, it's striking that a lot of the aridity of the current debate, a kind of stalemate that we see in the Scottish Parliament, is to do with the fact that there's, there's not, you know, really big policy differences between Labour and the SNP as the two strongest political forces in that Parliament at the moment. What there is, is a lot of personal bitterness and a lot of ad hominem argument and general sort of shrieking about how people are unfit um, to play any part in politics. And that is never edifying. Um, I'm leaving the Tories out of this discussion at the moment because I think Douglas Ross, as still the nominal leader of the opposition in Holyrood, is increasingly um, slightly marginalised from the important debate. The differences between Labour and the SNP are also extremely important, though. Apart from the, the impact of incumbency on the SNP, which of course creates its own problems. The SNP for the last 13 years have been effectively through the block grant from Westminster administering austerity imposed first by the Cameron Osborne configuration and then by the, the kind of clown show series of, of conservative governments we've had since David Cameron's re resignation in 2016 and, and since of course the debacle of Brexit which has had an extremely negative effect on Scotland as an, an exporting economy um, which 
it always was in a slightly, slightly statistically greater way in England. So it's, it's, um, it's been a particularly difficult economic time for Scotland, followed by the pandemic, followed by the various other stresses that face modern government, the demands of um, trying to uh, meet the challenges of climate change, all of that. The SNP has been dealing with all of that under the pressure of the current Westminster settlement for 16 years, and particularly under Conservative government for the last 13 years with very strict limits on public spending. And although it has a little wiggle room in terms of its own tax-raising powers, obviously it's never popular to use those, those too aggressively. Um, and you're constantly confronted with opposition parties who say you should be spending more money on everything while never seeing um, where you should raise the taxes in order to do that. So they're in a difficult position. They've, they've, I think, handled it reasonably well. I mean, everyone can argue about how good the SNP's performance in government um, has been, but I think history will see that they handled a difficult situation with some grace and some really important ameliorations of the really uh, difficult social policies um, that have come from Westminster. And you know, I'm particularly keen on the Scottish Child Payment Initiative, which according to some of the, the, the really major observers of social trends in the UK is having a game-changing effect on Scotland's position in terms of the amount of poverty and destitution um, that we're seeing in the UK at the moment, which is shameful and which still exists in Scotland and which should not exist anywhere in a country as wealthy as this. But nonetheless, in that kind of way that a devolved government can within an unsatisfactory settlement, the SNP there have made a really major initiative which from day to day, from today to tomorrow, is making real differences, particularly to women trying to bring up families and balance household budgets, sometimes as single mothers, in desperately difficult conditions. Any of us who listen to people in, in those sorts of situations know what a difference it's making. And, you know, these are things which should not be written off just because it's not the revolution and it's not the full achievement of Scottish independence. But the other big difference, of course, between Labour and the SNP, apart from the whole number of issues that are rise from incumbency is the fundamentally disruptive nature of the SNP's central policy. Um, the idea of the SNP is to disrupt this British state, perhaps not in any kind of um, negative way, perhaps in a way that, it, you know, under the right conditions could be extremely positive for all of the parts of the United Kingdom and for these islands um, generally. But nonetheless, it has pledged itself to a disruption of the British state in a way that distinguishes it fundamentally from the Labour Party and from PC Plaud, as Hillary so memorably described the Labour Party and particularly the Starmer Labour Party as kind of policeman of the current British settlement. The SNP will never be that. And it's interesting, actually, that at the moment that shows up most clearly, and it has ever since um, the SNP took up this position as a sort of social democratic party back in the 80s and 90s, it shows up most clearly when it comes to foreign affairs and international matters. I think all of us will remember um, the kind of shockwave of Alex Salmon's denunciation of what was going on in the Iraq war when he called it an unpardonable folly. And frankly, electorally, the SNP never looked back from that moment. It was a view that was shared by so many people in Scotland that it transformed the SNP into the natural party of the Scottish centre-left. And that was a huge achievement. And now, very different situation. Maybe the dimensions are different. Maybe it will not have the same electoral impact. But you can see again that Hamza Yousaf, like no UK politician, is free 
free to say that he supports a ceasefire in Gaza in a way that Keir Starmer clearly doesn't do. So, but the political problem with that, of course, is that if you're a disruptive party which doesn't achieve that disruptive aim, or it looks as if it's going to take a very long time to achieve it, then many of your own supporters who want that and passionately and wouldn't be in the party if they didn't, become extremely frustrated. And that, as we've all observed in recent years, causes splitting, causes, causes, and um, New initiatives like the Alba Party causes people and also causes a kind of culture of complaint against the leadership of the SAP, you know, which is full of sort of comments about people on greedy trains and stuff like that. Oh, actually, if you look at the lifestyles of most SNP politicians, I think there is little evidence that many of them are only in it in order to become um, personally rich. However, those resentments are present and, and they can have a, a, a marginal electoral impact. Even if the, the sort of parties like Alba are not particularly popular at the ballot box, they can erode the, the vote for the SNP in ways that could change Scotland's political landscape going forward. And finally, that incumbency situation raises questions about policy direction. After a long period of incumbency, there are bound to be tensions about policy decisions which have been made and about the general direction of the party. And egged on uh, by the right-wing press, who of course love people who um, dissent from the SNP leadership to the right, there is now a cohort of people both inside and outside the SNP, former SNP people and current SNP people who are attempting to push the party to the right, either on social issues or on economic issues or on both. And the SNP faces that difficulty. You know, the constant negative talk about the alliance with the Green Party, which of course is in realistic terms, almost essential for the future of Scotland, that the SNP has very strong and clear uh, green policies. And yet there is constant abuse on the subject of that alliance. From, from some in the SNP, from some who have left the SNP, and from some who are, are, are simply opponents of um, any kind of attempt to tackle climate change and don't care what means they use um, to further that reactionary policy. So all of this makes it a very important turning point for the SNP. I believe, uh, but this is something we could maybe debate, that if it makes that right turn, ditches the Greens, and moves in the kind of Kate Forbesy, Fergus Uni sort of direction, I think that will be electoral suicide. As Tom Nairn would have said, for party attempting a really liberal, open and civic nation-building process, it is absolutely fatal to adopt reactionary policies either on social matters um, or on economic matters because it takes away the content that makes their project of nation-building worthwhile for people who really care about well-being and who really care about democracy. Now, Nicola Sturgeon's leader of the SNP, I think, successfully established herself as a leader, however effectual or ineffectual, you may assess her as being overall as a leader who genuinely cared about those issues, issues of well-being, issues of a sustainable future, and maybe to a slightly lesser extent, issues of democracy and empowerment of ordinary people. And like any party in power, and the SNP has got internal problems now with control freakery and a general kind of uh, bunker mentality, like any party that has been bruised by the British media, both the SNP and Labour are now too 
frightened um, of the policy of division to allow the kind of freedom of debate that would be healthy within them. But you know, the accusation of division is so fiercely deployed by most of the British media um, against parties that it doesn't like that that fear is perhaps understandable, but still, as several speakers have said today, essential to overcome it in the interests of open and free debate. And I think there's one final point that I'd like to make, that although Labour stands in a strong electoral position at the moment, I think the debate over Gaza, which has been mentioned several times today, shows just how close to the surface some of those explosive pressures on the Labour leadership now are. You know, by kind of, in kind of technical terms, Keir Sarma has done a, done a good job in making the Labour Party sort of presentable to the British establishment. You know, they kind of decided that it's time for a change. And you can see the sort of British media establishment, people like that, giving a kind of nod to the Starmer government as, yes, it's time for a wee turn of Labour government. Here you go, Scare, you look like a reliable type. Get on with it. Fair enough. But I think, and for all of the reasons that we've been discussing today, these explosive questions of disaffection and of people's demand for greater empowerment and of people's demand for a voice for the real diversity of modern British society are bubbling just under the surface of Labour Party now. They have surfaced over the issue of Gaza. And I think if and when the Starmer government is elected next year, we will see those pressures emerging in ever more interesting um, and disruptive and potentially creative um, forms. So that's, uh, I think, where we stand at the moment. And um, I'm just looking forward to the rest of the discussion. Thank you very much. Thank you, Joyce, for, for that. I think that egoism or small differences point rings very, very true that the level of tribalism in our politics, I think, is so unhealthy and, and so, so toxic in so many ways. Our final speaker in the session is Alan Smith. Alan is a member of the SNP and is the MP for Stirling. He was one of the Scotland's MEPs for, for several years. And I won't share the, the stories from, from some of the campaign trails in 2014 and, and 2019. But, but I, th I think it's fair to say that Alan, within his role as the MEP when Brexit happened, I think really hit the tone of, of how we were feeling here when you said those words to Europe, leave a light on so we can find our ways home. So, Alan, over to you. Well, Maggie, thanks, uh, thanks very much uh, for the introduction. Thanks not for sharing the stories of the 2014 and 19 uh, election campaign uh, when Maggie was a fantastic candidate for the Greens for the European Parliament. The SNP, of course, sat with the Greens in the European Parliament, and it was a great shame, Maggie, that you didn't get into Brussels at that occasion. I'm delighted, and I have to say very proud, of the SNP-Green cooperation in our national parliament in Scotland. So, I'm slightly here as super sub today. I'm channeling my inner Mike Russell for you, so I'll keep it to a four-hour version of my remarks. But he's been called away to the SNP's National Executive Committee meeting, and I've stepped in. But he does send his best, and he did very much want to be here today. Because I think celebrating Tom Nairn's contribution to Scottish politics, and indeed UK's politics and Europe politics, is, I think, a very salient thing for us to do. But I would take some issue with the, the, the title of today, The Breakup of Britain. I have to say personally, and I have to say in the SNP, the breakup of Britain is not actually what we're about. We're about the independence of Scotland. And, and in much the same way as the, the, the ceasefire vote that we had down in the House of Commons this week was presented by a UK media of what does that mean for Labour? That wasn't why we were doing it. We were doing it because we think there should be a ceasefire in the Middle East. 
I'm often struck since I've been uh, investing the corridors of Westminster, right, since I was thrown out of my first parliament. And, and thanks, Joyce, for your reference to SNP politicians not being too comfortable and on a gravy train. I, I can assure you, having been thrown out of my first parliament, I really am working hard to get thrown out of my second. It does strike me down the road that I have to say that perspective isn't a synonym for a difference of opinion. We see a lot of this stuff from a different place. And we see the EU referendum in a different context because it was intricately linked to the independence referendum 16 months earlier. So in England, the EU referendum is seen as a standalone event. In Scotland, it's seen as an integral part of our national discussion about where Scotland wants to be in the world and where we want power to lie and who we want to work with. So there is a lot of wrinkles to this stuff, and I think the UK and Britain is going to break up, and that is a process that's going to need to be managed, but it's going to break up precisely because of the centripetal and centrifugal forces that Tom Nairn identified many years ago. And they have been accelerated by demographic change, by the, the, the way that our economic situation has altered by COVID, but also by the interplay of the independence referendum from a Scottish perspective and the EU referendum from a UK perspective. And it's worth those of us from SNP Green Independence perspective to remember that the people of Scotland rejected the change proposition twice. The 2014 referendum, we were offering change, and we lost. We had a significant majority, majority uh, 55% against a significant minority in favour, but we still lost the change proposition. And in the 2016 referendum, much as we have a warm, fuzzy feeling about it in the SNP because it endorsed our pro-EU sentiment, the people of Scotland endorsed the status quo. And it was the people of the UK that endorsed change. And I think the interplay of those two psychological aspects of those referendums, the people of the UK by a majority of 52%, and if we want to do it by home nations, it was 2-2, uh, much as that's not the arithmetic situation. They endorsed the change proposition, but they didn't necessarily have a blueprint for what that change was going to be. And the lesson for me out of Brexit is you need to know what you want and you need to have done your homework. And that is where we still have a UK that is negotiating with itself about what its relationship with the EU should be and the wider world. And I'm struck, always struck, because I, to my roots, I am pragmatic. I want to find solutions. I don't greatly like ideology in my politics. I want to find real-world solutions. And when you've lost 4% of your GDP by doing one thing, and I appreciate GDP is not the right measure of stuff. I've been saying that for the best part of 20 years. But if you've just had a hit to your economy by doing one thing, signing up to a trade deal that is going to recover 0.04% of that GDP should not make you giddy with excitement, as it does so many of my Tory colleagues down the road. We need to look at the elephant in the room, and the UK as a whole needs to get real about the fact that geography matters, trade finds the nearest way, and as we've seen in Northern Ireland, as we've seen in Ireland, we need to get real about our relationship with the EU, and I really hope that the UK finds a way back into the EU single market and the customs union at least, and then the political family thereafter. And I can say that hand on heart as a member of the UK-EU Parliamentary Assembly, which oversees the Trade and Cooperation Agreement. I'm the European EU Accession Spokesperson for the Westminster Group of the SNP down the road. And my job is to work on getting Scotland back into the European Union, but also simultaneously at the same time to work on solutions to have the UK having as close and deep and functional a relationship with the EU as possible. And if people down the road don't believe me in my sincerity of that, it's because I want to see the UK have as deep and close and functional a relationship with the EU as possible, because that's where I want Scotland to be, and that'll make our proposition easier at Carlisle.
I think the European aspects of the independence proposition are absolutely fundamental. Absolutely fundamental. And in terms of the, the, the title of today, the, the, the SNP after Sturgeon, uh, Nicola was and remains a rock star politician. She's a friend of many of us in the, the party. It won't have escaped anybody's notice that it's been a tough time in the SNP lately, and it's been a, a, a personally very difficult time for a lot of us, because the SNP isn't just a political party. I was speaking to an event in Cumbernauld last night, and, and we're family, a great big dysfunctional family, but we are, we, we are a family, we've got a cause. We're not just about winning seats and taking power and managing well, though all of that is important, all of that is, I think, crucial to delivering independence. But we've got a vision, we've got a cause, and that cause is independence in Europe. And that's where this, this conference is so well-timed that just yesterday, the Scottish Government published Independence in Europe, the seventh white paper on how we've done our homework and how we know what we want and how we know what we're going to propose to achieve it. And if you've not read this document, I really would urge you to because it's really fundamental. We have done our homework, we do know what we want, and we're putting that to our friends across the European continent to make clear that, well, yeah, there are still pro-European voices within these islands. And I think that would be good for Scotland I think that will help deliver electoral success. Support for independence with all the problems that the party's had lately. Support for independence, and we don't have the monopoly on independence within the SNP, but we are the, the central nervous system to deliver it. And our proposition matters. And our partnership with the Greens matters, and other members of the Yes Movement matter as well. But what matters is winning. And support for independence is bumping around 50%, depending upon who you ask, how you ask, when you ask. But support for EU membership at the latest poll was 72%. Now, the difference between 50% and 72% is called winning. And, and, and I'm quite in favour of winning. I quite like winning. I don't back losers. And I think with that aspirational vision that the UK is not as good as it gets, that we can have a different economic model, a different social model, a different model of international solidarity. We don't want to be independent, to be separate and apart. That's the Brexit Britain. We want to be independent and make our own decisions at home and join with our fellow colleagues and friends in the wider European continent towards common effort. Because climate change, organized crime, war in various places aren't going to be dealt with by one country, however big or however small. They're going to be dealt with by coalitions. And the EU is solidarity in action. And Scotland's natural place is within that, and I think that's what's going to deliver, in large part for a lot of people, a reason to vote SNP at the Westminster election and a reason to vote for independence thereafter. So I'm excited, and I don't feel downbeat about the party's prospects. I, I, was, I was late this afternoon because I was out campaigning in Corton, uh, as we always do every Saturday morning. I'm up the best part of 200 doors this morning, actually talking to the people out there in the real world who want some hope who want to know that politics isn't all about WhatsApp messages and iPads and ferries. It's about bigger stuff than that. It's about dealing with the priority of the people of Scotland. And within the Westminster context, and I'm not, I, I don't know any secrets about our manifesto to tell you, but uh, the SNP in Aberdeen at the last conference we had, we've agreed our strategy to deliver an independence referendum. We've agreed our strategy for the Westminster election. And I think we're going to need the biggest, boldest, and most ambitious aspirational manifesto for a Westminster election the SNP's ever produced. And that's what we're working on. And we're going to obviously have the SNP to become an independent state within the European Union, page, li page one, line one. But we're also going to be looking for the devolution of section 32, the Holyrood Parliament. We're going to be looking for the devolution of employment law to the Scottish Parliament. 
in order to mitigate against the gig economy, trial shifts, precarious employment, the fact that so many people in work are in poverty. We can do this differently, and as we've demonstrated with the child payment, we can do things differently within a devolved context, so let's do that. We're also going to be putting forward ideas about devolving energy to Scotland, because I'm getting emails from pensioners who can see the brazier doing wind farm from their houses, wondering why on earth their electricity bills are going up through the roof. And it's because the UK has delivered a broken energy market. And in Scotland, I think we could do better. We're also going to, because we're going to need, we always do need to find oxygen within a UK context in a Westminster campaign, because there will be those who are desperate to present the UK election as who's going to be inhabiting number 10 Downing Street after this election. We're never going to be that. But that's always been a pressure on us. But by saying what we would do with the powers we presently don't have, I think we should nationalise the post office in Scotland. We don't have the power to do that presently. But if you think that's going to happen from a Labour UK administration, do stick around. I've got a bridge to sell you. <laughs> so by demonstrating what we would do with the powers we presently don't have, as well as wanting to get back into the European Union as an independent state, I think we get oxygen in a UK context, we'll hold Labour's feet to the fire in terms of the paucity of their ambition, and we'll thereby demonstrate why an SNP vote at the Westminster election is important. So the party's had its surveils lately, and that's been tough but it will end, and that will pass. And I think the fundamental issues that are rattling around Scottish politics, which is yes, no to independence, and leave remain still to the EU, we've got the answer. And I think we've got the bullet at our feet, I think the people need hope, and I think to deliver a progressive left-wing agenda within a UK context will be an appealing prospect for a lot of people. Now, the only thing I would disagree with what Jamie said, that Labour might win by default in the UK, I actually don't think that's a foregone conclusion. I think that's the top end of expectation, I'm afraid. Because this is going to be the dirtiest, grubbiest, nastiest UK campaign you've ever seen. It's going to be about war on woke. It's going to be about gender-neutral toilets. It's going to be about little boats. We're going to see a deeply populist Westminster budget shortly, with some deeply retrograde, to my mind, proposals. But they will be popular in parts. And we've got a UK government that is banking on a low turnout, a scunner factor that says you're all the same, I'm not voting, why would I bother? As we've seen this week, there are deep, deep fault lines within the Labour Party. We've been accusing the SNP of wished for Indy. Wait till we win independence and then we'll sort that out. And I have to say I don't see much evidence of that in the real world, but it's out there. But the Labour Party can genuinely be accused of wished for government. And I don't think that's going to hold in the ferocity of the Westminster campaign that's coming to us. So I think uh, a hung parliament is a not fantastical proposition. I think the prospect of us having the balance of power is an option, is a possibility. And we'll need to see where the numbers fall. We'll need to see where people vote. I feel very upbeat about our prospects, and I feel very, even more upbeat about the prospects of ultimately independence in Europe. And I think it would be good for progressive politics in the UK as well, because look at the map. If we have an Ireland sovereign within the European Union, Scotland sovereign within the European Union, Northern Ireland in a status that keeps it basically within the EU's ambit. I think that buttresses the UK into the European continent in a significant way that will mitigate against the delusions of separatism and going it alone and exceptionalism that we've seen from elements of the current UK government. And I will work with anybody south of the border towards progressive ends. We're the third biggest bloc in the Westminster Parliament right now. When we were putting the ceasefire vote forward, it was a genuine open offer to come and join us.
and the fact that the Labour Party has got itself into a position where it's against a ceasefire at Westminster but will vote for a ceasefire in Holyrood? It's a matter, I have to say, of deep regret to me because I, I, I came from the, a Labour environment, as many of us did when I was at law school, I volunteered for the local Labour MP. It grieves me to see the Labour Party having such a paucity of ambition that it does at the moment. Which is why I'm a Nats, and which is why I think the SNP can, within a Westminster contest, be that gilding up factor that we want to see. So I'm excited about the prospects, but excited even more about the discussion and the questions and comments that we're going to have this afternoon. So it's great to be with you. I'll be here for the rest of the day. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Thanks very much for that, Alan. But I think the point you make about cooperation being the way we get things done is something that we maybe don't hear enough about in our, in our politics, so thank you for that. We've got some time for questions now. Uh, thank you very much for all your contribution. Um, I have a very simple question. What are your views of compulsory voting? I just wanted to ask, pick up Jamie's point about the operating system, open service, open democracy, and can we persuade Labour, if it gets into government, to, to make democratic participation the ruling theme of it's the way it works, the way that Mrs. Thatcher said, the solution to everything is the market. So let people power be the solution of, a, of a, the next government. How do we persuade them to do that? I guess my question picks up a bit on Jamie and Francis's intervention, which is around some of the dynamics of Starmer and authoritarianism. And, and one thing that I thought was a bit absent, was touched on by Jamie, but kind of absent more generally from the discussion was um, in relationship to Starr's really, really problematic politics around race and racism. And I was wondering if you could kind of um, talk about that a little bit and the implications of what that might be like in a kind of Starmer government. And in relationship to that, I just want to also really contest Francis's kind of whitewashing of the Brexit referendum. I think it's really dangerous on the left to talk about that as if racism was an only constitutive aspect of that. And I think it'd be useful to have a bit more reflections on that because I think that's had impossible to, to kind of understand the kind of depth of kind of authoritarianism I think that we're facing without understanding the kind of role that racism has played in that referendum. Cool. I'll take the last one first. And just to be really clear, um, my attempt wasn't at all to whitewash. I was trying to say that I think, in fact, I think to your exact point, I mean, of course, racism, racism was part of it. That was I mean, clear to anybody who's paying half and high. What I would just add, what I was trying to bring across was like 17.5 million people, they didn't just vote because they're all bigoted racists, right? And we, we heard a lot of that in the aftermath. And I actually thought... You know, I saw this post on Facebook the next day, and of course it was the, you know, the post on Facebook the next day, right? And so it was very emotive. But one of my friends had said something like, I didn't think that 17 million people in this country were fascists. And I thought, the only people who are going to benefit from that are the far right, because they look around and think, okay, well, yeah, all of those people who voted were with me. And I was like, well, no, hang on. Let's just really understand what happened there. And I think the complexities of those votes, like what people were actually saying in it. And the point is, right-wing media will always play back that people were bigoted and racist because that's what they want other people to believe. They want that block to feel bigger than it is, right? And all I'm asking is, you know, I come from Oldham, which voted 70% to leave. I know people of many different racial and ethnic backgrounds who voted to leave there. They had complicated and often very nuanced reasons for why they voted the way 
that they did. I'm just asking progressives to go out and do the work, right? Ask the questions, right? Really, really work it out. And of course, and test racism wherever we can, but build that confidence amongst progressives to do that through a sort of reciprocal listening campaign, which I think still needs to keep going, given that it's even seven years afterwards. Um, just to pick up a couple of different like, of good questions. Great question about compulsory voting. I, I think uh, the problem is I think a lot of people in this country understand their votes don't count. You know, 70% of votes don't count. You might as well put your vote through a shredder in a lot of, you know, places. And I think rather than forcing the argument, I would rather make it actually, you know, people know what's in their right interests. And if they thought their vote actually counted, they would probably go out and do that in high numbers, right? In countries with proportional voting systems, generally the turnout is much higher. It is in Scotland as well. And also goes back to the question about doing the work. Make people feel that they're part of it. That, that, that is not just a kind of mark on the ballot box, but it's something much deeper and bigger. And if people, if it's just a tick box exercise, people understand that as democracy. And I still think we've got a lot of work to do to say democracy is more about more than about representation. It's more than about elections. And I think Scotland are much further along the path than we are about that. Um, and just finally, um, on Titus's really good question about. Uh, democracy being the solution to everything. Like, give more people the experience, right? In, in Canada, one in seven people have been asked to take part in citizen assembly. That's a pretty incredible figure, right, for a country of sort of 20 million people. And because they've been asked, they've had to sit up and think, well, I could, could be me, right? Big lotto sign. It could be you, right? You could be called on to participate. And I think we need that culture of participation because, you know, that expectation yields more interest, more engagement, and ultimately maybe answer some of that. I don't think I've actually got much to add on the subject of race, in particularly in the politics of Brexit. It was clearly there. It's not the whole explanation. I suppose all I would say is that when we look back on this period of history, we will be shocked by the extent to which the most florid aspects of Eukinia, if you like, the sort of imperial dreaming, the negative attitudes to foreigners, the exceptionalism and so on, and the extent to which our government our governing party came to be in the grip of that kind of ideology and how much that ideology was enabled and furthered um, through our media uh, during this time, even though perhaps it was never originally held by that many British people, will become a subject of historical comment, I would say. I, I think you know, we have to occasionally remind ourselves in terms of the present Conservative government just how bad things got in terms of that debate. In terms of uh, Labour making, putting democratic participation at the centre of everything, well, I feel as if we've got a bit of previous on this in Scotland. Back in the days of the Labour-Lib Dem coalition at Holyrood, after all the um, civic agitation and campaigning and work, really hard work, most of it completely unpaid, uh, that went into the, um, into the setting up of the Scottish Parliament. I remember uh, sitting there and being told by a couple of, of Labour ministers in one of the early Scottish governments and their civil servants that they were going to cut off the money to the Scottish uh, Civic Assembly because it wasn't needed anymore now that we had a parliament. So I think we should never underestimate the desire of professional politicians once they get into office to kind of shut up um, any kind of competition um, that is coming up um, from the grassroots. It's a characteristic of all parties, I would say. Back in 2019, just before the lockdowns, I had a kind of wonderful um, um, 20 years on reunion with some of the people that I worked with on the, ca on the um, committee that advised the, the then Scottish office and Rue McLeish and so on, on the setting up of the Scottish Parliament, so veterans of the, the movement for a Scottish Parliament. And we got together to, to get a kind of a report card to the Scottish Parliament. And 
one of the things that we regretted most deeply was the failure of successive Scottish governments to reform local government and to really re-empower and reform and in the ways that Leslie Ruddock has been campaigning for for years, really strengthen the role of grassroots local democracy in Scotland. Um, any student of democracy in Europe knows that local democracy is the basic building block. If people don't believe in democracy at the local level, then they're not going to have the confidence to be terrific democratic citizens at national level. So, you know, I think all political parties, including the SNP, um, all political parties in power are difficult to persuade on the subject of mass democratic um, participation. Um, but, you know, I wish all the best, genuinely, for all those grassroots activists across the UK who, if we get a Labour government will be trying to push them in that direction. Finally, compulsory voting, not a fan really. It's a, a bit of a, a sort of um, intrusion into people's freedom to, to tell them all to get lost. But uh, I do think that what we do need urgently in the UK, and I'm pretty shocked that it really hasn't happened up to now, is some kind of debate about how different voting systems across the different assemblies in the UK and in local government in the UK now are working what they have achieved and what they haven't achieved. Idealising PR as the answer to everything gets us nowhere, but I don't think anyone in Scotland, or very few people in Scotland, who now want to go back to first past the post. So, you know, there's a huge debate to be had there, and it's not being had, and so much experience in Wales, in Scotland, in Northern Ireland, and in local government. On compulsory voting, I, I would tend against it, because I think it's basically illiberal. If people are not enthused to vote, uh, there's, we need to tackle the reasons for that. That feeds into points about citizen assemblies and people power. If we're in a representative democracy, it's quite important to make sure that the democracy represents the people. And it doesn't at the moment, in, a, in, in the, the Westminster context, which is why the SNP's policy is STVPR for all levels of government. Uh, when we were still part of the EU, we had four different electoral systems for the four different levels of government that we had. And that needs to be remedied. And uh, the countries that do have compulsory voting, I think people tend to register protest votes. They tend to vote for populist parties. Uh, we see that particularly in Australia and Belgium. We tend on how do we how do we make democracy more appealing and more representative than make it compulsory to participate in a broken system. Uh, the, the point about racism and Brexit, and I, I, I spent a lot of time pre and post the 2016 referendum reaching out to people who voted Remain, but also those who voted leave. And, and the racism was part of it, the xenophobia was part of it. I don't think it was the driving factor for the vast majority of people who voted leave. I think the people who voted leave were endorsing the change proposition. And we saw this, in the, you might remember, in the last few days of the voter registration period in the 2016 referendum, the, voter, the deadline was extended a few days because so many people were signing up to take part in the referendum. And David Cameron, whatever happened to him, uh, derping that uh, this is a fantastic thing that proves it's going to be a success where those of us who lived through the independence referendum, you don't check out of the democratic system for 40 years and then check back in to endorse status quo. So, so all of those people were checking back in to vote leave because for the first time, particularly in England where so many votes are perceived as wasted, quite rightly, I have to say, their vote mattered for the first time ever. So where does that disappointment now go? And, and that, that keeps me awake at night, I don't mind admitting, that there, there, was a, there was a cry for change that hasn't been delivered. And, and that's where I think reform of the electoral system, getting rid of the House of Lords, uh, all, all of that stuff, is all the more important because people feel rightly cynical. 
the Brexit referendum, my experience of talking to people overwhelmingly was the reason those people who voted for Brexit did so is because they thought, no is listening to me, I want to teach you a lesson. That was the overwhelming feeling. Um, and I, I can't remember how many doors I knocked on. Only once do I remember talking to someone who I considered overtly racist. Uh, I'm, I'm sure they didn't think of themselves as racist. But the question was also, was how does um, Sakia view this? I have no privileged insight into another person's mind. But I think, for him, racism is a second-order issue. And I think his politics, he's essentially a Rawlsian liberal. He believes that, well, look, everybody has an equal chance in life. And if we can get there, then that works. And if you're someone who's ended up as the director of public prosecutions um, and knighted, you think, yeah, that's a wonderful model. That's a failure to understand what racism is and how it affects people. And to give you an example, um, there are, I know of complaints who've gone in, uh, in the Labour Party, and um, if it had to do with anti-Semitism, quite rightly, they are dealt with seriously, but if it had to do with Islamophobia, they get brushed aside. And if it's to do with anti-Gypsy traveller aroma racism, they're not even taken seriously. And I think some of that is a look at the polls and think, oh, well, that's actually quite popular. We'll not stamp down on that. Um, and that really worries me because that said, there are certain things which should be fundamental on a moral basis and not simply how can we play this to get an electoral advantage. <laughs> the question, um, how do we manage to change anything uh, on a big basis, particularly in the Labour Party, um, how about mass hypnosis? <laughs> um, I've run Citizens Assembly on Climate Change and we uh, have implemented the results. Um, after May, fingers crossed, I'm re-elected, um, we'll hold a Citizens Assembly on Transport to directly involve people in those tricky payoff choices, which you have to do, prioritization of road space, how you want to uh, allocate fare, and who pays for things. Um, let's get the people directly involved in that. That works better. It's also, by the way, as a politician, it's great because you can say, hey, look, this is what people said. <laughs> you don't blame me for it. Um, actually, Joyce mentioned something. She was saying that Hamza Youssef's the one politician who, as a national party, obviously mayors have, I have. Um, Andy Byrne has Sadiq Khan have all called for ceasefires. Um, but can I just say that Keir Starmer is free to say he supports a ceasefire anytime he wants. He's the leader of the opposition. It's up to him. He doesn't have to just fight to anyone. If it's the right thing to do, he should do it. So on compulsory voting, when I was in the Labour Party, uh, I went to so many CRP meetings where, where nobody turned up. But as soon as there's a contested vote, the room's packed, isn't it? People will turn up to vote if they think their vote counts, if they think it matters, if they think it's close. Part of that is changing away from safe seats and marginal seats. That's an issue of the voting system, a big advocate of PR. PR doesn't get there enough. It's what powers at what level. If you give powers significantly to local government, People will vote more in local government. If they think, well, it doesn't matter what happens, central government control the purse strings, it's just about emptying the bins, they're not going to turn up and vote. If you give them some significant power, they will turn up to vote. And um, by the way, that would significantly help our electoral system. Because do you see a great deal of talent on the Tory front bench? <laughs> How much talent do you see 
on the Labour front bench. Now, the job I do, I actually run a region of England in one sense, um, and it's incredibly difficult work. I have the advantage that I was 48 before I was a politician, I ran a business, I have a degree with a very strong mathematical basis as an engineer. Um, and if you've come through, you can have great ideals and, and great strength of will, but you can very easily find it hard to administer. You need people a chance to have had cut their teeth if they're going to be good, effective politicians, pragmatic politicians, able to get things done. And we need a far more plural source of power so people can actually be judged on their track records and not judged on, on how well they perform in the media. And the reason I think... I'm not a massive fan of compulsory voting, it's for all those reasons, but also, as a politician spent there enough time looking at the rejected balance, um, I think we would just see an awful lot more penises written on ballot papers. <laughs> Thanks very much for that, Amy. I think that's probably a good place to end the session. <laughs> can, can I just say thank you once again to Francis, Joyce, Alan and Jamie for that really inspiring uh, discussion. We could have gone on all afternoon. Thanks for listening, everybody. If you've enjoyed this episode and maybe even found something useful to share in your next conversation with an undecided voter, please give us a like and please also subscribe. It's free. New episodes out every Friday. Catch you later. Bye now. Thank you.